it's it's me, it's Ollie. Ollie! Ollie G! That's, how do you not have my Ollie number Grant. saved on your phone? I, I use a landline. You said you were driving. Anyway, how are you? Um, yeah, fine. So, to be honest, I'm... Uh, all the emails you haven't replied to, my phone calls... Yeah, this has been going on for, for, for months now, so... Mm. And to be honest, we just seem to be going around in circles, and quite frankly, I mean... I just feel a bit lost right now with the whole thing, but... I mean, brother, where's this going? Oh, I don't really... Holly, you just put your finger on the pin. You feel lost. I was lost the other day. I went up the motorway the wrong way, and do you know what I turned to for help? An ordinance survey map. And I thought, Ollie's lost. I am lost. What can help us? We turn Ludo into an ordinance surveying map. Hmm? So, you want to turn my 95,000 words that I spent years working on into just a sort of compilation of bridleways and contour lines and campsites. Look, people think in different ways. People have very visual minds. And look at people reading again in cars. And we're not, we're not going to have cars any minute now. We're going to have driverless cars. People aren't going to spend any time in cars anymore. There's no need Even for a map. more time to read in transit. Look, so when we, when we had this conversation months ago, you said that you saw me on, you know, on, on, on the Sunday Times bestseller charts. You saw me in the front windows of, of foils and waterfronts, not in the footwells of like Nissan Micros or whatever it is you drive. Look, start at the feet. Work your way up to the mind. Look, Ollie, I've got to go. I'm having surf and surf with Han Kang. Isn't she a... Welcome to another episode of Walking With, the podcast where I, Ollie Grant, struggling author and critically acclaimed nobody, goes on walks with writers who I admire and want to learn a thing or two from. This week I am walking with the academic, activist and author Preeti Tanesia. Set in contemporary India, her debut novel, We That Are Young, is a big and brutal retelling of Shakespeare's King Lear, charting corruption, greed, ambition and tradition of a country on the brink of change. After seven years of drafts and redrafts and numerous rejections, We That Are Young was published in 2017 by the brilliant Gelly Beggar Press. It's since gone on to wow readers and critics alike, and in June of this year, Preeti was awarded the prestigious Desmond Elliott Prize. Preeti, thank you very much for coming on a walk with me today. Thank you for coming to Latchworth. Hey, no worries. How's your twister? The twister is excellent. I haven't had one of these for about 20 years. I think this is my... No, actually, I had, a... I had one the other day. I had a... made the rash choice when I went and had an ice cream in London Fields. I had a double cone. Oh, wow. I was feeling cocky. I was like, yeah, I can take that down. <laughs> Halfway through, no way. But these are good. Um, so, as I mentioned there, Desmond Elliott Prize winning author now. Yes, I mean, That's no one big. was more surprised than me. Were you? <laughs> yeah. Did you have anything prepared when they read your name? Well, David um, Godwin, my agent, had warned me, you know, make sure you write something. And he was dead right, because when they call your name, I don't know if this happens to everyone, but certainly my mind had just 
while um, the judge was talking, my mind had just sort of floated out the window and I started trying to kind of like think about the things I had to do the next day and knowing that there would be a next day and it didn't really matter and all this stuff you sort of tell yourself while all of this stuff has been talked about and then suddenly it kind of got through to me that she was beginning to talk about my Richie, wake up, <laughs> yeah. wake up, it's you. <laughs> And Sarah Perry, who was the chair of judges, then, you know, she started raving about my book and then she said my name and, and I was so relieved that I actually had something written down because I, you know, I am, I'm used to public speaking, but you're never used to that moment where you have to stand in a room full of people you don't know, some of whom you were in competition with in a way. Yeah. And, and is that set ten thousand pounds <laughs> and a bottle of champagne from an author who you absolutely think is fantastic. And do they give you one of those massively oversized checks? Oh, no, they're way too uh, elegant in a way. Um, it, well, was a, it was an envelope. It's a discreet handshake. Yeah. <laughs> I always can you are you allowed to cash those massive cardboard ones that you yeah, get? Yeah, yeah. Um, what an amazing evening! Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, much deserved. So. Um, as we're walking and talking, where are we walking today? Okay, well, we are walking towards William Village in Hertfordshire, and it's a very, it's a very special place for me because it's a very short walk from where I grew up, um, home, my family home. Um, it, it, you never realise it when you're a child, like how the urban environment or the or the local environment around you is shaping you. But this is a place where I used to run away to and escape to. It's not very far from. From, from home but it, it feels still massive, feels right? uh, very different you know from the estate lordship estate and um, here we are uh, there's a pond and there's a field and at the end of the pond and the field um, there's a pub there are two pubs one of which I spent quite a lot of time in way before I should have been <laughs> there basically that is a good thing about rural pubs you can get them up 14 years old and then you just live there <laughs> and then you just stay there <laughs> and everyone's so used to you by the time you're 18 no one says anything it's like all you have your 18th you... birthday in there and they're just really happy for you yeah they're like ah we've lived too long <laughs> yeah it's like I had that the other day when my dad he rented a cottage somewhere sort of outside Alton and we were there for about a couple of years when we were about five or six, something like that, and never been back since. Black already? That's bonkers. Have one, that'd be really nice. Do you, they look a bit, um... There's one I can see that you can eat. With that one there? Yeah. Yeah, you have it. I've got my hands full. I've got my questions in one hand, my twist in the other. How is it? It's really sour. <laughs> But there are some more here. That's global warming for you. Yeah, I know. August. This is nuts. Isn't there a famous poem about blackberry picking? I remember doing one for GCSE. That Any was nearer for you than me, so huh? it's worse that you don't remember it. Mm. <laughs> not true. I mean, it's not a bad thing to forget those poems you did for GCSE. They're not mm. like, you know. Anyway. Um, so your parents are Indian. You were born um, here. You said you speaking about Indian other interview when you, you said, described it as being this kind of mythic place growing up um, what sort of myth was that what sort of idea did you have of India as a place growing up um, I don't know if I'd call it mythic um, as a place I mean at home we ate Indian food every day my mum made chapatis and dal and, and sabji and that was our dinner you know she wore her silvacanese and her sari every day she spoke to us in Hindi, you know, she, that was her language, yeah. um, and English. She was completely bilingual, both my parents are. 
so our lives are very much of, of two worlds. And I'm talking about me and my sister, um, when I say our and we. And so, you know, we read a lot of books that came from India, Indian fiction, stories, comics, mm. as well as having outside the house this completely different culture and life that we were also in. Yeah. So... You'll straddle both in some way. Yeah, for me, it's like, you know, it takes a long time to come to terms with yourself in this way, but for me, it's very much like not being from two different worlds. Not having two different worlds or being some kind of split personality that, oh, you know, I can't be Indian when I'm in a white place or, or, or be, you know, too Western when I'm in an Indian place. I am both those things and yeah. that's just who I am. And I just have to go into these different spaces with that wholeness and that sense of myself. But I've only come really to that kind of feeling since I finished We That Are Young, actually. Really? Yeah. And why do you think... Why do you think people are made to feel like that? It's easier to blame the individual for being to be, for, for having some kind of problem, a, a psychosis that's caused by um, society's divides, rather than actually fixing the divides. Mm. Oh, oh, oh. You're being attacked by a blackberry bush. <laughs> I fit right on my neck. Oh, no, you're okay. You're fine. I'm slightly bleeding. Um, so, the novel We That Are Young is a, a modern-day retelling of um, King Lear, and it took seven years to write a read. What came first you was it did you want to write about India or was it the story of Lear or was it just a perfect marriage between the two um I think it was um Lear definitely came first because I did it for A-level same and um yeah so you're still doing it for A-level 20 years later you know which should tell you how kind of powerful this this, this piece of art is in, cult, in our culture um it's shaping our imaginations at an age where we're as as young people especially if you grow up i don't know if it's especially true actually which is a complete generalization but it's one of those things that you know if you're of a certain age and a kind of mindset then every bit of poetry you read matters yes every line you read has some meaning to you that no one else can understand and even if it's byron or kabir or Shakespeare, suddenly there's like underlining and there's like, you know, it's deeply felt stuff. Uh, maybe that never goes away once you have that habit, but Lear was like that for me. And did those meanings change and evolve from when it was at A-level to when you began writing it? Or did they just get richer and all they more? They just got ri richer, yeah. Because yeah. from the very beginning, I sort of had this sense of in indignation about what was happening with the daughters. Um, because, you know, when you go to India, as we did for most of our summers and uh, most of our um, Christmas holidays, you see family life in a different way. You see extended family life. You see patriarchy much more near the surface, perhaps, than I was aware of it mm. here. You see families, you see, you know, my aunts all managing huge households, or not huge, but enough more bigger households than the kind of mum, dad, and two kids yeah. that I was familiar with. And in the household of a similar economic background, there might also be someone who comes in to cook, someone who comes in to sweep, someone who does the laundry. There's still people supporting, and then there are cousins and aunts. And you there's know, huge cast of characters in, in, in these places. Yeah, well, I mean, they're real people. <laughs> no, 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 that's not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was used to seeing that, and then you know, it was there on the stage. So the, stru the structures, the feudal structures, and the family structures there were, were very familiar to me in a way. I think whenever I've seen a, a production of, of King Lear in particular, it's always been 
in terms of how it's produced and where it's set and what time and what it's trying to get at maybe it's always I always feel slightly let down because it's always a gesture towards a time or a, or a place something like that and I th- what I loved most about your book was that it was so clearly defined and when it was set and it was allowed to go into such great detail um, and did you really enjoy doing that rather than it being more vague as the play which to its strength allows it to be? I think when you take um, epic plays and make them into novels you have to respect the uh, openness in a, te- in a play text and the potential for any timeness that theatre offers mm. you. But novels are a very different kind of form. So you have to make some decisions about how you're going to respect that epic nature. But also you have to pin it down into time. Yeah. You just can't get away with it. The reader needs it. Yeah. And so for me, it was, it, was, it was sort of a question of how do I do this? Okay, fine. The first way you do it is through language. You, you kind of drill down into the way that Shakespeare makes language work in a myriad of different ways on the page and that's what has made it last for so long and have that grip on our imagination because mm. it still works on us in very emotional ways. Um, and the second thing is you can build other mythologies into the structure of what you're working with. So the book has like the Lear structure in the plot but it also has a lot of Indian mythology it has Mahabharata it has laws of Manu it has Upanishads and Vedas and you know some of those kinds of epic characters that come from Indian mythology can you talk a bit more about them because they're probably <laughs> things that I wouldn't have picked up on in my reading it's not some yeah no I think if you don't pick up on it you can enjoy the book either way yeah. but um, I've read it twice <laughs> I loved it both times Thank you. who else um, has done that no one no one <laughs> it's a long book <laughs> it's um, a biggie yeah it's a biggie but it's well worth it and so yeah so the characters the female characters all have these epic names for example um the time structure is really important because it goes as a kind of straight chronology but it also doubles back and folds in itself and that is a way of um understanding time that is i think built into the hindi language and early language and the way that we understand like birth and death and resurrection and so on different to Christianity in Christian times. And in your, in your writing, like the language and sort of the imagery, and I thought it was so textural as well, sort of every sense is, is played and used to its, like, to its full in, in, in the text. Did that come, because I know you spent some time you were writing it here, sometimes you, uh, you went to India and wrote it out there as yeah. well. Did you find that that came about by immersing yourself with those details by living there or was it by kind of stepping back and actually letting your imagination kind of really run as well does that no um i wrote like the first draft of the first three bits of the book because it's divided into these five sections and i wrote the first draft of that um in london actually i used to live in london in north london much of it in islington library which is really beautiful little library yeah um and um i can remember feeling it was a bit flat and it felt like a bit like satire it wasn't working for me um so we packed up my partner and i packed up our flat and we went to india for six months we let the flat we kind of you know left london essentially for this book and we walked we we went to delhi um and kashmir and we just immersed ourselves and i i immersed myself in 
in this world with the specific intention of opening my mind and my senses to gathering information and using all my skills as a reporter, human rights activist and so on, things I had done before the book, to, 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 to document what I needed. Are we going to get through this gate? All with these wires. Switch. Put it, there we go. Logic. This is lovely. <laughs> yeah, you can see when you've got nothing else to do, it can help. Um, you know, it ha I've walked this way a hundred times, thousands of times, in every weather, um, in every kind of mood. I had the same walk around my house as well. And uh -huh. it's not the most exciting to walk. You go, you go past a sewer work, so it's hardly like, you know, of all the places we could walk, why do we walk past this sewer the whole time? It's disgusting. <laughs> but it's just the walk that you do, and you have yeah, walked it through, it is. and so you see the seasons, and you go there, and you're feeling sad, or when you're feeling happy, and yeah. the conversations that you've had, it's just part of the, sort of the yeah, DNA of, of family is. life. It's Every lovely. Sunday, there would be a walk. This you know, this is it, and... And do you find walking when you're writing as quite a good yeah. alleviator thing, or yeah. a way to melt things over? I love walking um, in cities. I grew up here, but, you know, it's a small town with fields around it, and the A1 is literally, you can see the cars yeah. from here. But, you know, city walking is my favourite thing, and, and, I, and this walk in particular just is so laden with, mem with emotions and memories. You know, I remember coming here wearing my ridiculous bobble hat as a child with my family and then, and then coming for like doing teenage things when <laughs> I was a teenager. We came here and like smoked cigarettes. You drank said it, mate. Cider. <laughs> that's just what I did. That's just, that. that's just what I did. <laughs> Good in dear girls, so it's supposed to be right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but back to what no, you were saying about having been, um, so I know you've done, you've been a broadcaster and you're a factual reporter as well. When you went there and I read something, you were speaking to people and you were listening to their stories, did you feel a, a sort of weight of responsibility when, when, when writing this novel in some way? Even though it is a work of fiction, but it draws upon very real, very urgent issues in the book. Yes, I did. I mean, I have been a human rights reporter. In fact, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, for, for something I've been writing um, and the question of who gets to tell whose story is obviously one of our times mm. it's, it's a big issue at the moment and for me because I had I have done you know human rights reporting in very difficult conflict situations with people who are completely traumatized by what they've been through I I didn't want to set this story from the ground up in a way because I feel like the, the books I've grown up admiring and have been very honest about their point of view and it's sometimes more interesting to look from the inside of elite privilege to deconstruct it to go from within and then work yes. outwards yeah, so one of my favourite books is um, Kutzia's Disgrace. Yes. And it's told from the perspective of this completely revolting human being. <laughs> but because he's so revolting and you're so close to his brain, you can see exactly how universal his view is. Yeah. 
and it just taught me so much about responsibility, about ethics, about writing itself. To be able to do that, honestly, is I think the way that, you know, that's it really very much influenced the way that I approached writing with Ayam. And when you were right, when you were writing it in London, when you said it felt a bit flat and more like a satire, is that because you were writing it perhaps from an outside? You were going from outside in as opposed to inside yeah, out? Yeah, I was just relying on childhood memories and some of the feelings and, um, and experiences from that time. And it was easy just to take, take it to write on a surface level. But it really took me to, to getting into Delhi Land, to taking that trip on the plane. And as soon as I was on the plane, I was just thinking about the characters own experiences you know luckily for me Shakespeare sets this up brilliantly where this young man arrives back in his father's house after all of this time away um so I was able right from the minute I got off the plane to start looking through his eyes in a way Mm. at this new country that has developed while in the 15 years over the course of the 1990s and 2000s um and this is the character of Jeevan yep this is Jeevan um who is, yeah, who arrives, yes, very westernised, but also wanting the sense of belonging from there, and then turns out to be, yeah, really despicable um, in some ways of what he does. But I, what I found really intriguing with, with the, the daughters particularly was that they were so three-dimensional and they weren't just pantomime they're not all the characters they weren't pantomime villains or or yeah. angels in any way and they were so wonderfully conflicted and loyal and estranged and independent yet dependent and i thought it was yeah it was wonderful and how rich they were thank you um it was really important to me to make them all seem like a like they are a family well, yes and families hate each other but families love each other too and <laughs> You know, they feel loyalty even though they know they shouldn't. Yeah, and with um, their father and amongst, and even the deeds they do to one another, they are still bound by this sense of loyalty and a, a deep love for each other, which yeah. is, yeah, incredible to read. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And I was so intrigued when I first read this because you can, if you have studied it, you know the bones of the Shakespeare play going through it and you can kind of see which characters are who. And then I was really fascinated to see what you would do with the storm scene how you would convey that <laughs> and it's epic it's so good thank you it's so cool uh, yeah that was a big scene for me um, and I actually wrote that scene when I was in Delhi and there was a sandstorm blowing outside I mean so much of this novel is rooted in realities I experienced or stuff I read in newspapers and, and India is, is, has gone in kind of this trajectory, much like America and here in terms of kind of right-wing religious fascism and, and communal division and things like this since the book was first draft was finished. But, you know, I could see it, you could see it coming. And, and my friends in India have basically said to me, there's nothing in the book that's controversial, even though to an outside reader it must feel very very extreme and very corrupt Mm. and wow this is such wealth it's unimaginable but it's very real and it's very everyday (laughs) to a certain section of Indian society and the kind of violence in the play um, and the violence in the novel is is you know it's a daily life occurrence Mm. this is not unusual and it's getting more and more extreme I could have gone ten hundred times bigger with this book <laughs> and I saw that you, you put out that article on your Twitter of the, the Guardian long read about the extreme wealth in India and the rise right. of the what they call the the bolygarch. Yeah. Now. But that has, has 
these companies and these families become just commonplace in, in, the, in the economy and how things run there. Yes, that's true, and in politics as well. And, and in many ways, I had to limit my own self because my family, who own this incredibly powerful company in the book, have limited their concerns to India. Mm. But when you think about the kind of Tatas and the Ambani's of this world, they own steel concerns all over the UK. They own oil uh, rigs all over who knows where. You know, these are global corporations. And somehow because to kind of acknowledge them in the media and they're completely private, perhaps they keep themselves to themselves and that's just the way that they do. But the fact that they, that if I said to you, Tata Steel, you might look at me with a question mark in your eyes, tells me that there's something about them which the world doesn't want us to know, normal people to know about how powerful they are. And I'm sorry, but I want to, I want to believe in a freedom of democracy. Yeah. You know, we're walking in some of the most extraordinary parts of, of this county that I grew up in, and, and it's a beautiful day, but I look at it, when I look at it, I think this isn't real because someone somewhere is suffering really a lot so that this can exist. And did you come up against any resistance during your sort of research or investigate or anything like that? <laughs> no, no, people don't think that, you know, you go and say, all right, oh, I'm just this squidgy brown girl and I'm writing a novel. Yes, dear, let me tell you all about my business. Really? It's easy. Undercover? No, underestimated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> and so, when, as you were taking on these things, did you ever feel... I don't know, but I when I would I could balk at the task. I mean, I don't, it's, it's kind of patronising to say it's, it's a very ambitious novel, but it's not. I mean, you pull it off amazingly well, and it's so professional and adept. But did it, were there at times where you felt sort of felt the monumentality of the task of the play, of the history, and the subject matter that you're writing, or were you like? I'm um, just smash I think this? yeah. No, that's an interesting question. I hate being told no. I don't like being told that you can't go in there or that's not your place or stay in your lane or whatever it yeah. is. I, I've always hated that sense of being not allowed. And with the Leah, I just felt like I had owned it. For, it had been mine for so long because I fell in love with it so young. Mm. Um, and it changed the way I could think about language and politics and family. So I didn't really see it as that kind of, oh, I'm taking on Shakespeare kind of challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as you get deeper into this sort of endeavour, you realise what you're taking on. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I meant, more yeah. like that. And there were times when I was just like, I'm just writing fan fiction here and this is really silly. Because I had set myself the challenge of trying to do this shot for shot in a way or scene for scene. Not to just write, write something that took the bare bones of the idea and made a dystopian fiction somewhere else or you know, um, and I did do a lot of reading about people who had done it before, different types of versions. And I learned a lot from those. I mean, my favorite Leah versions are Edward Bond's play, yeah. Leah, which is just the most monumental piece of theater. Um, and the, the uh, Kaczynstev Russian choral Leah. And what, what did you draw from both of them that sort of you took from that into, into your Okay, so Edward Bond's play um, is really in a kind of Brechtian tradition of theatre and it is to do with um, the absurdity of trying to build walls. So it was written in a time where he was responding to, you know, the Berlin Wall and 
the Cold War. Um, he really sees and draws those links. He isn't interested in making a kind of catharsis, which his play is commonly used for or put on to kind of, here's this towering male hero and oh my God, look at him fall and his daughter in his arms. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I respect that as much as the next person, don't get me wrong. But there's something about this play which is a social tragedy and a, and a blindsiding comment on how human beings can fuck things up. Yeah. And how That's everyone's true. responsible, including people watching and clapping at the end. And, and, and Bond understands that, that absurdity. Oh, look, this guy's been blinded, curtain comes down, everyone claps. You're not even Right. And that is the power of that kind of theatre to make us feel responsible in some way and pulled into the politics and then take that away and say, okay, how can I see the world differently and do things slightly differently? So right. that's what I wanted to capture in the, in the way that young, that kind of absurdity mm. and never to get so close that you... I wanted people to feel angry rather than moved in a way. Yeah. And you do, I suppose, people have said they are very moved by what happens, but it's just more to do with not not giving you a hug at the end and saying oh all, that's it job well. done you could go and cry and feel better but shut the book and do something dif differently and it ends with a, with a beginning with him taking this drink and being like and now we begin yeah. it's, it's really cool in that, in that way um, so and it's very inspiring Bond, um, with the Kuzinska that was the first time I had seen um, the storm scene represented with actual peasants because it's Russian. So you've got this whole kind of storm scene in which there, there are actual basis beggars in the room, in the kind of hovel with Lear. There's, hun there's, like, there's like men packed into this hut with him and he's still saying wherever they are. It, and again, with the absurdity that he sort of can see them, but he doesn't want to see them. Yeah. Let's turn around, otherwise we're going to have Yeah, it'd be a nightmare. It also would hurt as well. <laughs> I'm not gonna try it. I'm not that much of a badass, unlike someone. Um, this book starts, it, it, remember, I think it's set around the, it, with the corruption riots of 2011. Yeah, protests. Yeah the, the, yeah, the protests then. How much have you seen, have things changed for better or worse? I mean, since that, I mean, seven years on from that? Well, many of the politicians who endorse that protest have been swallowed up by mainstream politics and you know it was it was opportunistic in many ways um, the bill itself I think is still going through but don't quote me on that it may have passed I haven't kind of kept ahead of that but it's been a long time it's taken ages the kind of freedom of speech and liberty in India is under severe threat um, in ways that have got worse since the current administration came to power. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of very very dangerous anti-Muslim, anti-like Dalit caste violence um, is taking place. Journalists speak through their newspapers, write books, and so on. 
but advisedly speak out as individuals because people are being murdered. Um, you know, it, it, it is not a safe place. There is a huge amount of activism going on. There are people who will like never stop reporting on it, fighting it, doing everything they can on the ground to improve the lives of the people who need it the most. But this sort of wider political situation feels tenuous to me. And at the same time, those who have money just keep on making more money. There's that very pertinent line in the book which says, one cannot create paradise without maintaining hell. <laughs> Someone in Kashmir, when I was doing my research, actually said that to me. Have they been credited in the acknowledgement? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I can't say who it is. Okay. Yeah, no, I was at, when I went to Kashmir for this piece of research, I was there for a while, and, um, and I had some, ex some extremely generous guides who helped me to meet people, took me into parts of the city which are dangerous most most people who live there don't go there and you know um and talked a lot about how to interpret some of the things i was seeing because you can't just show up somewhere have a look around and think that you know what you're talking about yeah and in a way that's kind of why each of my characters doesn't pretend that they do know you know we see kashmir through sita's eyes mm. and she is 21 and she's grown up in luxury in delhi and she's gone to university in Cambridge so you know she's kind she of feels incredibly naive when, when right. she's there how can she know exactly like she can feel pity because all she can see is silent people because she doesn't know anyone she can talk to yeah you know and and there's a kind of politics of representation going back to what we were talking about before it's the way I wanted to do that because yeah. you know there are plenty of people who can write about Kashmir and do much better than I would I'm not ever going to pretend to be an insider it's something I'm not yeah. Um, but yeah, so my, my helpful guide sort of, sort of said to me something that I've seen a bunch of times, that if you, if you can get through a war and make money, then you're not on the side of the good. So simple, but it's so yeah. true. When someone says it to you, you can't unknow that. Yes. Is that in the book? Uh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've been I'm talking about more sort of writerly stuff and the actual process of, of writing and publication. You finished this in 2013 didn't actually get published until 2017. If that was me, I, that would have really tested my patience and faith and belief. Did that ever come to you? Or were you always kind of positive? Did you know that there was something that was gonna happen with this? Or? I feel like um, when I first got all the rejections, um, publishing has this way of making you sort of go, you know, oh, you're amazing, but I just didn't fall in love with it. And that's the publishing equivalent of, you know, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> yeah. And now I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, you were right. It wasn't me, it was you. <laughs> that must feel pretty good. Yeah, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I tend not to think about it too much because I want to enjoy the good stuff more than dwell on that. But, you know, doubt is so important to admit and I can't deny that the years in between finishing the first draft and finally being, you know, signing a book contract with the amazing Galley Burger Press mm -hmm. 
weren't easy in terms of confidence in my own writing but like I said earlier I just hate being told no yeah. and it didn't feel like it was because of the book to me I couldn't really put my finger on what was going on until a bigger narrative around race and representation and you know started kind of becoming more and more vocal and then I started rethinking over what happened to me and thinking hang on a second I can't name 10 British Asian female writers working at the top of literary fiction in the UK who've won prizes, big prizes. No. Nope. I can't do that. And I'm like, I'm an English literature teacher in a university. I'm a writer. Why can't I do this? And so what did Gally Beggar say to you when you spent to them? Oh, well, I mean, I'm sure you must have heard this story. So basically, um, I have a terrible Twitter habit. I'm on it way more than I might appear to from the actual amount I tweet. You tweet a lot. Do I? <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so, yeah, so I'm in bed one morning and I'm just scrolling through my phone. And I, um, I saw this competition for um, a novella prize run by a volunteer press in Norwich called Gatehouse Press. Cool. And they published a little journal called the Lighthouse Journal. And... Yeah, so um, what happened then was I I realised I had a story that was about the length that they were looking for in my bottom drawer. It's it conveniently all, had it. <laughs> yeah, it was something Here's what I made earlier. Exactly. And I just thought, oh, I'll send it in and see what happens. And I won, and the prize was being published, and they pr- produced this beautiful little Kum Kum Malhotra novella. Um, and then the guys asked me, you know, do you have anything else do you want us to have a look at? And I was like, oh my god, my novel. Here's one I made earlier. Yeah, 500 pages. <laughs> and I gave them the Jeet chapter, which is the stuff in the storm, all that slum stuff. And uh, they took it round to the Gallybagger house in Norwich. They took it to their house and knocked on the door one evening. Seriously? Yeah, no, this is totally true. And said, here is this amazing writer that we've just published here's her 50 pages what are you gonna do and they're like yeah yeah gobble it up they read it ellie read it and then she asked to see the rest before i gave her the rest i spent two weeks literally on a holiday in wales where i was supposed to be having a holiday rewriting editing yeah 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 yeah, yeah. stuff most of which didn't survive the final (laughs) Um, and then, and then it took a few more weeks, but she bought it in like January 2016. Amazing! Yeah. I went to go and see um, uh, Jonathan Gibbs, who is also published by by Gally Beggar Press Talk, and he he just spoke about them with such fondness um, as a publisher and yeah. the sort of the intimacy that he had and the dedication and care and consideration that went into everything. Yeah, um, he said was just an experience like no other is that the same for you oh yeah i mean all of the galley beggar writers um are like a kind of weird crew and we're all very different we just hang out no we go to each other's launches and everyone's you know supports each other's books with emails and tweets and you know when everyone if someone gets nominated for something we all cheer if if someone doesn't quite make it we're all like this is awful (laughs) it's lovely it's like being part of this really kind of loose connection of people who all have the same dreams about how the world could be i guess 
And um, Francis Plug um, it's coming out. Brighton Residence is about to be launched and I'm beside myself with excitement. I cannot wait. <laughs> I've pre-ordered already. Have you? Yeah, 14th oh, September. Poor, plug poor it, plugging the plug. Plugging the plug, right, let's plug the plug. Um, that's going to be, but they have just produced, they just consistently just produce absolute gems. They did the Mimic Bride and they did Randall and they did yeah. Feeling Time and then with a young Francis Plug. Um, they just do so many yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, Paul, Paul's first book, um, which is called um, How to Be a Public Author. I remember when um, Galley Beggar were reading my novel um, to see if they wanted to buy it, and I took a copy of that book to my local wine bar and bought myself a drink. And I was literally crying with laughter while I was reading this book. And everyone, because it's one of those places where it's very small and you share tables. Um, everyone thought I was reading a self-help book <laughs> and that I had dreams of being a writer, you know, that I was reading this book about how to be, <laughs> how to be a writer. <laughs> um, and so beyond the world of writing your book, you also teach in prisons as well. Yes. You want to talk a little bit about that and how that came about and sort of the experiences you've had there, if you're able to? Yeah, sure. Um, so... I, um, we're just going to walk down the road. So yeah, so I, um, I live in Cambridge and there is a wonderful program there called Learning Together, which is run by two academics in the Institute of Criminology. And they get people to run courses inside prisons where they teach the Cambridge students alongside the inmates of the prison and so they were looking for someone to run a creative writing course because it had been expressed by the men that this is something that they would like to do and that's what we decided to do so I said yes I will run it Um, and you know it's going into its second year now it is a phenomenal privilege to work with those students. The writing they produce is is just so full of potential. Um, it's really exciting. I used to work for a literary charity and did some work in prisons and the and they, one of the things we did there was some writing in prisons and the response that you used to get from the inmates was just unbelievable it's and they unbelievable. said they said this is the one thing if they could have anything they said we want to have more of this they said this is what it is right and it was just such a, a amazing atmosphere to be around because they were so engaged and so focused exactly and there was right. so much there's so much talent there yeah. and the the sadness was is that <laughs> you went there and then you'd have to get and it was never it was never quite enough and I think because of cuts and etc but some of the people that worked there were just unbelievable. I came across this one extraordinary librarian who his library had been moved and they, the prison was so understaffed that they couldn't facilitate moving people to there and so they would order extra books and then have to bribe the guards oh with books in order to facilitate people moving there. But I mean extraordinary but the passion that they had for it. Right. I've worked was in just all amazing. sorts of places which are akin to curtailing people's freedom of expression. One of those places was a refugee camp on the Syrian-Jordan border and I spent time there working with the kids. It 
it's obvious to me after 20 minutes that if I spent more than 48 hours there, I would, I would go mad with boredom. I think boredom is a disease. It, it literally kills people. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, a, in a prison environment, obviously, there's less opportunity, your time is more regimented and, and so on and so on. But one of the kinds of similar things to this is that even though refugee camps are meant to protect people, they're also meant to keep people from leaving. You know, they couldn't leave, the kids can't leave. That's, that's their home. I'm not saying it's like... There, there are some kind of architectural things and spatial things that, that really reminded me of this, those two situations. And then, of course, you have to deal with the fact that as the person who's going in to teach those those classes or do that work, you can leave. Yes. And we can come back here and have this conversation or walking through a place where I, as a child, was completely safe and free. You know? Yeah. Um, that, that, that part of it is hard. And it's what keeps me doing it. Yeah. Looking ahead, what's next on your horizon in terms of work? You're off to America. <laughs> Can't talk about that? Yeah, really excited um, to say that the book is We That Are Young is being published in America on the 28th of August. And it's being published with Knopf, which is probably the most surprising thing about this whole journey that this book has been on, but also one of the most thrilling things that's happened in, an, in a pretty amazing debut year, I have to say. Um, the team at Knopf are incredible. <laughs> they, the copy editors, the editors, Sunny Mehta, the, the publicist, um, the marketing person, everybody is just so incredibly kind and so completely excited about this book and it, and it just feels absolutely amazing. amazing. To be going to New York to have you know two months of talking about the book in different bookstores across the U US and and some time in some different universities and things as well. I'm really, really lucky. Fantastic. Just can't wait for it to find more readers, see what they will make of it. I mean, you know, pe people have their um have, their, have things about this book that have, have put people's backs up. There is no doubt about that. Mm. It happened when it went on submission and it happened this year too. But I wouldn't be doing my job if I, if I was pleasing everyone all the time. again for one of our monthly audio rendezvous. Hello, how's it going? It's me, the Ollie G, reporting to you guys from uh, a park in Stepney Green, where I live, just doing a stroll while people in Lycra jog past me. Um, how's it going, guys? I hope you're all well. Um, I am going very well, thanks for asking. Um, so that was 50 minutes of me walking and talking with the brilliant Preeti Tanasia. Um, we had a fantastic time together and 
such an interesting conversation. I think you can glean from that. She really is a very, very special talent and she is deserving of all the praise she has received. And I hope she keeps doing this amazing work and I hope the book tour goes really well in America, as I'm sure it will do. Um, but it's a fantastic book, We That Are Young, and I urge you guys to go and pick up a copy. Like I said in the podcast, I've read it twice, and I know for a fact that I will probably read it again in the future. It's one of those books that just totally consumes you, and it's one that you can read and reread and still find new meanings and different angles within it. Um, it's just so rich. Um, but yeah, it's not a short book, it's a big mammoth. Um, but get your teeth into it, because it is just fantastic and it's published by the brilliant galley pegger press and do go and check out the other books that they publish because um they just consistently get it right um at every turn so do go and check that out big thanks to uh philippa sitters um who helped coordinate coordinate that's not even a word coordinate uh that interview um so thank you very much for setting that up um, and yeah, that's, that's about it really. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As per usual, I will have another one of these podcasts coming to you same time next month or there or thereabouts. Um, but yes, in the meantime, go and pick up a copy, go and read some more books. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at the Ollie G, um, where you can get more links to all of these episodes and anything else I feel like tweeting the football season's back up and running again so it's mainly just book stuff and my opinions of Lucas Torreira's performance and Peter Cech's ability with his feet but if that tickles your fancy then by all means give us a follow and you can keep up to date with what's going on and follow Preeti as well um, on Twitter because she posts a lot of good stuff on there. Alrighty, listen, I'll be back same time again next month with another one of these podcasts for you but in the meantime you know the drill. Keep walking, keep reading, most importantly, keep listening. Until next time, bye-bye.